I was twenty when it happened. It was a dark autumn night on the banks of the River Elbe, the coal fires of Hamburg's stolid and crumbling tenements adding their chemical tang to the evening's damp mist. I'd been handed my match ticket as we left Feldstrasse U-Bahn station and then headed up the stairs in a one-way throng. Everyone around me was singing, stamping and letting fall emptied cans of Holston. They rattled percussively on the walkways. Through the turnstiles with a creak, mumbled thanks, a drop of fag ash and half a ripped ticket pushed back. Then up the dozen steps and into the Nordkurve, just as Hans Alba's Auf der Reeperbahn started to splutter and crackle through the megaphone speakers fixed to the overhanging roof of the main stand and the stanchions. Smoke and steam rose from the crowd, thousands of shining eyes turning towards the dew-speckled field as kickoff grew near. Someone brought me a bratwurst with a ripple of sweet mustard along its glistening top edge and a foaming beer in a plastic glass. Just then, the teams ran out, a roar went up, a floodlight failed and everybody laughed. I laughed too, so loud I almost spat out some sausage. So this is football, I thought. And everything changed. That was an extract from the brand new, wonderful book, Square Peg Round Ball, Football, TV and Me, by Ned Bolting. Published by Bloomsbury, priced at $14.99, and available from the When Saturday Comes Shop and other booksellers. Welcome to When Saturday Comes, the half-decent podcast that strikes the ball through a forest of legs and beyond a hapless goalkeeper. I'm Daniel Gray, and joining me are When Saturday Comes magazine editor Andy Lyons and writer Harry Pearson. Time to hit play. As usual in the When Saturday Comes podcast, we're covering all the hot topics of the day, so I thought it was quite important. This is not a pun to talk about food and football. What are your experiences of and all the rest? Andy, are you someone that partakes? In the ground itself, if I was going to buy anything, it might be hot coffee, because at least on a cold day, it helps to keep you feeling you know, alive. If it's a nil-nil draw, you know, it kind of perks you up. But the standard problem, as I'm sure people will know, with coffee, any kind of hot drink or football ground, is you get really thin cups. And the worst blistering I've ever had in my hand was a game at Brentford, where I, I inadvertently spilled a bit on my, on my hand and it was blistered for weeks. And also that you have the choice of either do you stand by the tea bar and wait for your molten hot drink to cool down, which case you maybe miss some of the game, or do you try and walk back to where you were, threading your way through this crowd of people, and it becomes like you've got this dangerous liquid in your hand. It's like one of those things they um, did to people to test if they were a witch in the Middle Ages. You know, can, can you are you going <laughs> to burn your hand and die that way? Are you going to are you going to have to drink the hot liquid and die that way? You know, so I wouldn't normally eat. So between three and half four in the afternoon. So I'm, I'm, I've never really got into, aside from the fact that I don't really like burgers, never particularly got into thinking of eating hot food at football. It's always more hot drinks just to perk you up, really psychological value of the hot drink, but not really, not really food at the ground very much. It is a strange time of day to invent a meal for, isn't it? I wondered if it's football's afternoon tea. Yeah, but then they should be like cucumber sandwiches with the crusts cut off and things like that. Shouldn't You've be? been a to scone, Arsenal then, etc. A scone with cream, with Devon cream and things like that. I know the, the thing that summed it up to me was a friend of mine was at, went to the tea bar at the back of the Holgate end years and years ago, and there was a guy in front of him and he said... I want a, I want a black coffee, and the guy behind the counter said, oh, "Sorry, the, the put we've started putting all the the powdered milk in the cups first. They're all it's already in there, so you can't have a black coffee." So he said, "Well, I have a black tea then." And they're like, "So no, it's the same thing. It's like the milk powders in all the cups." So he said, "Well, have you got out this black?" And the the guy thought for a second, then he said, "The pies are the nearest. Do you want one?" <laughs> 
There's also, uh, I know or have heard there are some clubs where they put sugar in the tea urns. You've got no choice but to have tea with sugar. I guess for five seconds quicker for them to, to, to deal with each customer sort of thing. But. Yeah, the only time that I've ever actually tried to be a footballer is I went to see Fiorentina play at half-time. But first of all, there were men who came around with like, like the sort of old, the old usherettes at the cinema with little espresso cups and miniatures of brandy and were then like throwing them to people in the, in the, in the sort of curver. And then I went down at half-time and there was a man sort of frying those, you know, those big sort of Tuscan sausages in this huge kind of pan. And it was one of those things in Italy where often buying anything is immensely complicated for some reason. Italy. They make anything, buying anything is complicated. And so I sort of queued. There was no queue, just a mob of people. And so I was trying to work out how to pay for this. And then I realised that actually what you had to do, you didn't pay the man who was making the sausages. You went to a kind of kiosk and you bought a token and you paid, came back with a token and gave him the tokens. And by the time I worked that out, went to the thing, explained, because I don't speak any Italian, to the lady in the kiosk that I wanted a token for the sausage. By the time I got back, all the sausages had gone. So I've still got my, I've still got my, t- sausage, my Fiorentina sausage token. So obviously if any listener is going to see Fiorentina and wants a sausage, get in touch. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, probably because they knew it for free, really. I remember seeing a man who used to very often bring um, a, a bag of carrots with him to games at Fulham. The first time I saw him, I thought, oh, he's just been shopping on his way to the ground. They realised what he did was um, he'd wave the carrots at the opposing team's centre-half. Oh. just do it very quickly. Like, Here you go, mate, carrots for a donkey. Then put them back in his bag. But he, obviously, like a ritual he did. Uh, whether they're always the same carrots each time, I'm not sure. Certain shaped carrots, possibly that use, but hopefully you put them to some good use, cuisine-wise, eventually. <laughs> so you thought you think it wasn't funny when you started, and it still it's isn't still funny. Not, now. It's still not funny now, but you have to keep doing it because it's your tradition. You know, you have, you, something people terrible ex- happens. People are if you expecting stop. it. Yeah. People have set their clocks by it. It's quite an amazing thing that you can still bring one particular staple item to football, and that is the flask. In an age where so many items are banned from being taken into the ground. The flask is still a fine. And you also have, you have to even unscrew the tops off plastic water bottles, yeah. which is a ludicrous thing that Stuart's well, well, insisted. Well, a friend of mine, we went to the, well, we went to the Blyde, when Blyde Spartans played Hartlepool in the FA Cup when Blyde beat them, and we were on the, in the old the Millhouse stand, what used to be the Millhouse stand at Hartlepool. There were two women behind us, and they had a flask. And then at one point, one of the women, they were like very extraordinarily jolly as it went on. And then one of the women said, it's not tea in here, it's gin and tonic. And like a litre flask of it. Because we thought, oh, those women are getting progressively more. Yeah, because quite often the, the, the women who watch Hartlepool start off quite raucous. And they got noisier and more abusive as it went on. And then one of the women did point out that it was gin and tonic in her flask. <laughs> you talk of queuing up for sugar and different things has reminded me of being at Greenock Morton on my own. And they had a, a condiment table. And I was putting ketchup onto my pie, or brown sauce possibly. Scottish football fans have an amazing skill of balancing just the right amount of sauce into the crater of the pie. But unfortunately, as I shook the sauce, it came loose. Sauce went everywhere and all over this kid next to me's face and all over his coat and things like that. And I went to the kiosk to get a cloth to to wipe a child down, a random (laughs) child down. And the lady just gave me another pie. Ah. <laughs> wipe him down with a pie. That's the obvious thing. I did go. The, the only Scottish junior game I've been to, I think, was at Pollock. And Pollock has a famous. They have a famous pie, which I think is made. It's sort of like curried haggis or something. I, don't know, I can't remember. But there was a, they, they were playing Orkin Lake Talbot, and one of the Orkin Lake fans had one of these pies, and his friend said to him, "Oh, how's the pie?" And I remember he he, he replied. 
It's no F in Ambrosia. <laughs> Surprisingly poetic. Surprisingly, it was a, com- it was a combination of the, Ambr- the, the, Greek, the, the reference to ancient Greek mythology with the Anglo-Saxon. Talking of those fusions in Scotland, I wish you could get the macaroni pie in an English I didn't football nearly, but I nearly bought some because where we are now, where we're recording this is close to the Scottish border, so some things leak across. <laughs> and they did have them, and they did have them the other day. I thought, oh, maybe I should get some of those for Dan Gray cause, so that he, he feels a little <laughs> at home. I brought your shortbread, which you've, you've spurned. <laughs> <laughs> You'd have probably spurned the macaroni pie. There isn't enough fusion in shortbread. This is Italian Scots cuisine, putting pasta in pastry. Bellissimo. Exactly, and then with some chips for added <laughs> carbohydrate. Yeah. There's, there's also the thing, again, I think mainly non-league thing of uh, food as raffle prizes. I mean, this is the, the, the famous meat packet. The meat, the meat which packet. Which is very often the Northern League. And I think when we went to Crook, when we went to see Crook Town Plate, the Millfield Ground, they had a particularly... They had a sort of array. It was. It looked like a kind of harvest festival. Yeah, but so when tins you, of vegetables. Tins of vegetables. And I remember the guy said to us, "You know, this this is what the raffles for." He said, "It's all good stuff, lads." And he sort of gestured across yeah. sort of tins of marrowfat peas and pies. Yeah, and it was sale of the century. Kind yeah, of, yeah, and a sort Nicholas of bottle of Vosa. You know, yeah. <laughs> so I remember feeling marrowfat peas. That's right. I, I yeah. remember thinking, "Oh, this is depressing." <laughs> this so is, is the meat packet something they get from a supermarket already in the tray? Yeah, was it, well, I was talking to someone, of... a friend of mine who has, a, who has pubs, and she she always did, she's Scottish from Dunbar, and she always did a meat drawer in the pub, and she said, oh, you know, the, the meat drawer's really po- it's still really popular in a pub, but then the people are actually when the drawer's there, they're actually you know, and she was complaining that there was some butchery didn't give them there wasn't enough liver in it or something, there wasn't enough offal. <laughs> there was complaints from people who'd won the meat drawer, having won the meat drawer, then complained that the, there wasn't enough meat. <laughs> In and the there, is, there is probably a Central European hardcore band called Meat Packet. <laughs> I think there is, yeah. The... Do songs like things like, I hate you guys, and stuff like <laughs> They bring the meat out first, don't they, on a, a platter, raw yeah. meat, and then take it to each table and people go, whoa. Yeah, look at that hope meat. Hope I get lucky tonight. That's it, yeah. That's it. <laughs> I noticed I was in Guernsey a few months ago, and that's very big there, the meat raffle, which I didn't expect, given their reputation of being wealthy. Tax, uh, it's not something yeah. I, I sort of associate with tax evasion and wealth. No, no tax-free no, tax tax sort of don't really do it at football anymore, because you know, as, as the man at North Shields said, a political correctness gone mad, <laughs> basically, because it goes off. <laughs> that was the botulism. Yeah. yeah, well, yeah, someone said that, they put, basically because they sell the raffle tickets around the town, because it always used to puzzle me, because I've never, ever won. Like every time I go yeah. to a Northern League game, and like how many hundreds of games I've been to, I always buy a ticket and I never win. And I'm never even within 300 of having yeah. a winning ticket. And there's only 75 people there. So how I can be so far out? It just, it, I but wonder, apparently they've sold them elsewhere. The one thing I have only have won at a football ground raffle was a bottle of vodka, actually, at Tooting and Mitcham. I didn't bother to check my raffle uh, ticket during the game. They announced the number. There's only in the supporters... Bar afterwards, and no one's claimed the vodka, and I kind of got my tick out of my back pocket, and it was me. But I mean, it took me about two years to get well, through. I it. came when someone had won, it was a bottle of whiskey, and when he brought it back and looked at it, it's obvious that someone had had a nip out of it. Like a, one of the committee men obviously just had a quick swig from it. So it'd been opened, and there was like a, there's a big good mouthful had been taken out of it. Winning things at football is a whole different category, isn't it? And watching the ex player brought out to take a ticket out of the tombola while answering questions about what he's up to now. In, in, in completely incomprehensible as well, because they're always the man who has the microphone. It's just it's some really echoey mic. Carl Arley always do it, and they have this thing, and you've got, you've got no idea, and they're presenting someone with something. You've got, what yeah. is it? What's it for? Yeah.
we've talked a bit about Scotland already, and, and this theme shall continue because I would propose to you that Edinburgh's greatest contribution to civilization is nothing to do with philosophy and the founding of modern economics or anything, but it is in fact Bovril. Invented by John Lawson Johnston, there's a plaque on his house where he grew up in Roslyn near Edinburgh. A butcher brought together the beef trimmings, or it's a lot nicer when you say it in French, the glace de viande, and made it into what became Bovril. Phil Ball, who writes stuff about Spanish football, said um, a couple of Spanish friends of his went to a game, I think it might have been Grimsby, Phil's a Grimsby fan, and said, yeah, there was this awful smell, people were drinking this drink that smelled like cow pat. Which I, I suspect <laughs> may have been Bovril or some kind of Bovril-adjacent drink. It's one of those things I've never, ever had. But I am vegetarian, so that doesn't help. And there, there isn't a Quan version of Bovril yet, a Quavril. A qu- there should be a Quavril. I think there should be like a Bovril light as well, of a diet, Bovril, diet Bovril. I've only had, ever had it once, and when I was a boy, because he saw people getting it. And so I thought I'd have that. And I remember at the time, my granddad always had Victory V lozenges. And I must have had a Victory V lozenge and then a mouthful of Bovril. And, a, you know, the Victory V lozenge, I don't know if people... But it's like it's basically like a sort of mustard gas attack. <laughs> you're foaming. But they're pouring the Bovril in on top of it. It was a Chemical foul reaction. thing. But I didn't know. Last time I was at a game, there's a guy who always puts milk in his Bovril. And when I questioned him, I said, oh, I thought that was Bovril. And he goes, yes. And I, and I said, well, you're putting milk in. He goes, yeah, well... And he, said, he sort of looks at me and went, well, you'd put cream in consomme. <laughs> quite right, of course, because a Bovril is kind of like a... Putting the milk back in the cow. That's it, exactly. He was putting it back. So put, exactly, yeah. mixing the two. I don't yeah. know. There's probably some prohibition about it, I feel. Biblical prohibition. There's probably some kind of chicken and egg analogy as well going on. With yeah. Putting but he also, put, I'd see people putting pepper in it as well. That's quite a common thing, people putting pepper in their bovril. Is it the only place you can buy bovril as a hot drink? I'm sure you can buy it in a jar in some supermarkets. You used to be able to get oxo as well, though, didn't you? You used to be able to get a stock cube. I never understood the difference between them. Is that, I thought they were rivals like Pepsi and Coca Cola. No, they were, no your, your Oxo is a cube, isn't it? It's like a stock, is a stock cube, isn't it? Your Oxo. Oh, why I started talking about Oxo in a stupid sort of right attempt to play Winston Axon. I don't know why that one. Bovril of powder that you add water to and stock cube yeah. is a. Yeah, it was like, but Bovril's like a sort of, uh, it's like Marmite, it's a kind yeah. of paste, isn't it? Or whatever, I don't know, that sort of jam like thing. And then, and then the Oxo was a cube. An extrusion. <laughs> <laughs> beef extrusion. It's a beef extra- beef extract. Yeah. It's not something that will be seen at Forest Green anytime soon. Yes, Forest Green with a legendarily uh, vegan owner generally gets good a good press. I'm slightly, I, I suppose it's a sort of cliche. Now, but there's that joke about how do you know if someone's a vegan? They'll tell you. Um, that a little bit, you know, he's kind of imposing his. I'm, I'm sure he means well, but you know, imposing his. You and anybody goes to the football ground. I don't know. That's such a great idea, really. I can. I understand if he wouldn't want um, to be eating. Obviously, he doesn't eat meat himself. But does it does it annoy people to go to Forest Green a bit? Visitors. I don't know. So he's all vegan. All the things. So he's going to get a Kit Kat. It's not. It's not good, is it? No, it's not. Get a vegan Kit Kat. We can't be far from Jackfruit Burgers at Hartlepool, can we? That- <laughs> <laughs> They'll be pulled, be pulled jackfruit, because <laughs> everything is pulled, isn't it? Oh yeah, no, yeah, pulled pork. Pulled, but yeah, pulled, yeah. you can get yeah. pulled jackfruit yeah. certainly. Like, yeah. So I'm looking for a corn-based bovril drink called Quavril and a pulled jackfruit burger to happen in the next few years. Make sure you never miss an issue of When Saturday Comes by subscribing today. Not only will you have the magazine delivered to your door and save on the shop price, but you'll also receive discounts on books and t-shirts, plus get free access to our complete digital archive, which stretches all the way back to issue one 
1986. Go to shop.wsc.co.uk for more information. We've had a few pieces over the years, to say the least, in When Saturday Comes, about uh, what we'll call eccentric owners, chairmen, board members of football clubs. Lately, of course, coverage of the horrible demise of Bury and Steve Dale. We won't go too much into that here, but I thought we could go through a few of the names and stories that come to mind when we think of people like this. I'm talking about Bob Lord at Burnley in the 50s and 60s, Hal Stewart at Morton, John Cobbled at Ipswich. George Reynolds at Darlington and all of the rest. What comes yeah. to mind with you, Andy? Uh, well, we've had a few uh, football chairmen over the years who've either contacted us through their lawyers or phoned us up um, to complain about this and that. Um, I think I may not. It might be best if I don't actually say who they are. I guess it's a bit annoying in a way if you don't mention the names. But um, there was a chairman who phoned us up when we were finishing an issue. Once that comes to say he was going to sue us, which. It was a bit of a distraction on a, on a kind of busy Wednesday afternoon. I told one of my colleagues about it. I didn't tell everybody because we were quite busy. And it turned out he'd seen something that we just put online. We'd started reprinting, uh, putting up uh, old articles on our website. And he thought it was a new article that had some details in it about shares at his club um, and had thought we'd just written a new thing about him. Um, so I didn't really say much. He, he said he'd, uh, you know, he was going to write to us. Then he phoned back about 10 minutes later and obviously somebody had had a word to them and said to him, actually, this isn't a new article, this is from years ago, and he's much more conciliatory. Uh, in the meantime, I'd phoned up the person who'd written the article, who's a journalist in a local newspaper, who said, oh, he's always doing that. He phoned up the newspaper office and threatened to sue them, and then 10 minutes later he phoned back and someone said to him, hold on, you know, there's nothing here for you kind of thing. So um, we escaped that one. Um, there was a chairman who phoned us up, but um, he was on, on his phone in a car, and he kept going out of range. So we couldn't work out what he wanted to talk about because he'd say something about 20 seconds of silence and then he'd get back and obviously he was in the middle of a sentence but we didn't get the early part, we didn't want to keep asking him, so could you say all that again? <laughs> um, so he it, it, it concluded on it, I think we'd, it wasn't a libelous, well it wasn't a potentially kind of libelous issue, he'd just been critical of something he'd said and his, his kind of payoff was, you know, I just wanted to get a debate going. That's only kind of slammed, put the phone down. <laughs> Um, there was Quite a, like the idea of someone dropping the case because they come frustrated at the phone signal. Yes, <laughs> it doesn't yeah. matter. <laughs> <laughs> My reputation's in tatters, but I can't be bothered with this. Um, there was also um, around 1990, uh, one of my colleagues that once out comes at the time. We were interviewed for a magazine called The Publisher, which is kind of a trade magazine. And one of my colleagues that once out comes at the time, John Duncan, who did dealt with the kind of business side of things, had an idea which he didn't get any further than the end for. Seeing there was scope for doing like a news, uh, a, a, a weekly news magazine about um, English football, and a, a a certain club chairman phoned us up and said, "Oh, um, if this magazine is is going to happen, I might be interested in investing." And as he was talking, the phone rang uh, evidently in his office, and he said, "Oh, excuse me a second. And I heard him say to the other phone, "Tell him twenty five grand, no more." And he came back to me and said, "Oh, I think you may have just heard something you shouldn't have." And I thought afterwards, he's got his secretary to phone up because his secretary must have known that he was on the phone. He's got to got them to phone his other phone for him to casually say an amount of money, then remind me <laughs> that I just heard him say, "Oh, you shouldn't have heard that." And it was such like an obvious kind of. Though it, it did fit the personality involved, shall we say. But it's kind of a, a, an obvious kind of con man move to make, you know. <laughs> Andy's miming how these chairmen look. Yes, right. uh, yeah, yeah. 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 I, I should yeah. say, I, I, could, I could make anagrams of the names, but maybe I'd, I'd better not. <laughs> I, I also remember being told um, by someone who's involved with the early days of the Premier League that they, they went to have meetings with the various club chairmen. And the standard thing that a lot of the chairmen would say, they'd invite them to their house or on their boat, would be something like, have any other chairman got a boat as big as this? Or has anybody got a tennis court as big as this? And they all seem to want to know how they measured up 
in relation to the other Premier League club chum in terms of the size of the lawn, boat, tennis court, um, you know, crazy golf, whatever it was, you know. So that kind of thing is evidently high in their high in their um, priority. They can have all the wealth they like, but still very thin-skinned. Oh, often. surprisingly, yes. Who would think? Yeah, well, the, because the but the old school ones, like you're talking about Bob Lord, you know, that he. Was he described as the Khrushchev of Burnley? The Burnley he, butcher. The Burnley butcher, and he had a and he had a bit that his his in his office that the behind him was a life size portrait of himself, yeah. wasn't it? Oh, like so, Donald Trump. I was thinking of that thing when people have portraits of themselves. I've yeah. been in a few football people's houses, and it is amazing when you go around. You go, there's like images of you on every wall, and then there's like a little photo of your wife and kids like over there, you know, because they're obviously not as important as you are. Another but, famous butcher, Louis Edwards, who was the chairman, or used to be the chairman of Man United in the kind of 1960s kind of heyday, um, and Marquis Smith, um, who we met a couple of times once, uh, mentioned that he'd applied for a job once with uh, Louis Edwards, what he called Louis Edwards Condemned Meat HQ, which is a very kind of <laughs> There was, there was there not some uh, allegations about that meat that was condemned had green paint on it or something? It was painted green or something. It had a green streaks on it and it was then subsequently found in food that was served in Manchester schools. I can't imagine. I don't know what that had to do with Louis Edwards. No, no, no. I don't know why that's always coming to my mind. You don't want the Edwards estate coming after you. No, I cer- no certainly no. not. We don't want that. So anyway, that was an allegation, but it un- wasn't an allegation. It was just it was just somebody a, said just a thing that someone in a pub said. <laughs> so that's not that doesn't count because no. a man in a pub told me that. That's so the, the the journalist's vital source of all information is the taxi driver or someone or my hairdresser's sister. <laughs> well, Halder at Morton uh, was a pioneer in one way in that, that he brought over a lot of Scandinavian players to Scottish football. Through he had business connections in Denmark, I think, and had been over there quite a lot to see um, amateur. Obviously, the Danish league was amateur. And the Scottish clubs in those days, unlike English clubs, were allowed to sign um, uh, players from overseas. So there was a period in the 60s through to about the mid-70s where pr- primarily Scandinavian players. And Morton had a lo- quite a few players passed through Morton on the way to other clubs, including Rangers and Celtic. It matched the innovation of things like that with the classic tales, players given a turkey for their Christmas bonus. I think the choice was between a turkey and a new pair of jeans was the bonus choice. And famously, Hal's Gate, fans that went through that gate weren't counted in the official attendance. Thus, players didn't get the bonus they were on for 10,000 plus supporters. All these alleged stories of eccentricity, but quite liked as well, it seems. Now, you kind of, in a strange way, you sort of look, even like Bob Lord and people like that, because my dad worked with he knew someone or worked with someone who was also the chairman of a football club and my dad sort of said you know why on earth would you do it like you know you get a load of abuse and all of this and the guy said well you know there's x number of members of parliament there's so and so many house members of the house of lords but there's only 92 league chairmen and i'm one of them and then and then he said and then he added the clincher was and if i want to get cheap carpet i just have to phone so and so and if i want to get some cheap meat uh, with green paint on it i'll phone somebody else and he went through this whole this but it was all just stuff you know and if i want a big consignment of window lean or you know it was, but it was just rubbish stuff that you know like it was really tiny little things you know but it, but it kind of pined for those days of those sort of men don't you like you know like you know when i first started going to middlesbrough charlie amor was the chairman who owned you know he started off as a band leader and then he owned, he owned sort of like the hotels including the hotel where the north korean team stayed in the 1966 world cup and he he invited in his in his autobiography he says he invited the north korean team 
to come to his house and his sort of mansion that he lived in and for afternoon tea and afterwards he presented each of them with a Winston Churchill crown and I thought well if they took that back to North Korea there's you know they weren't going to live long but also yeah the, 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 the Winston Churchill crown was worth five shillings or 25p so it was a hugely generous gift <laughs> The greatest monument to these sort of megalomaniac characters is, of course, the stadium just outside Darlington. A strange thing to see on your deluxe northern pacer as you go by on the branch line to Middlesbrough. Yes, the most famous safe cracker in the ex safe cracker in the UK. I think he's running a, he's running a, I think a, a sort of fruit machine business out of a, out of a vaping shop in Spennymoor. Another that came to mind, less remembered and passed away now, actually, John Batchelor, who took over York City. Oh, yes, York City Racing. Yeah, inserted a chequered flag on the shoulder of the kit and the club badge. Yeah, he claimed that he was trying to um, sell York City in America um, to um, car car racing fans. York was going to become a, a sort of a car team, a sports car team and, and the football team. Well, that seems to be because because Newcastle United with John Hall, they had a they had a motorsport team as well at one point. Yeah, when he was doing the sort of Geordie Nation and an ice hockey and uh, ice hockey team. That was when they were going to be the rugby. FC Barcelona of yeah. Britain, wasn't it? Yeah, he took over the Newcastle Falcons as well, the yeah, rugby team. Yeah, um, he took over. It was Whitley Bay Warriors and Durham Wasps, I think, that he merged. It was when there was two, when there were two ice hockey teams in Newcastle. It was Chaz Chandler, former bass player of the Animals and manager of Slade and Jimi Hendrix owned one of them. Yeah, so he had that idea and they, they certainly had a motorsport team as well that he was going to, it was going to be this multi-sport. It all sort of strangely disappeared. What attracts these people to football beyond the old example you used of only 92 of us? Because it's not a business that makes much money very often. I, I think that some of the people want, I think like with John Hall, that a businessman, however successful you are as a business person, you, you don't get any attention. No one comes to interview you, really. I mean, except on like news night or something like that. Whereas if you're a football league chairman, suddenly you're allowed to sound off about yeah. everything, you know, about, you know, the economics and things like that. And in a sense, like Alan Sugar, the, the, you know, his chair, when he took over Tottenham, that was when he became yeah. a sort of famous personality. If he hadn't ever run, been involved in football, would he, whether he'd be on... The Apprentice, is that what he's on? I don't know, yeah. whatever, that, that programme, whether he'd be on TV as much as he is, I, and they I don't, really doubt. They also probably don't mind too much being disliked, which is the nature, nature of modern celebrity culture as well. At least people know who I am. They, they might hate me, but they know my name, which is the key thing, I think. Mm. So I, I think that, I mean, I think they get, you know, they, get a lot of, they get a lot of publicity. And I mean, obviously, for sometimes, if you've got a business, as you see, you know, with the current Newcastle owner, obviously that gets loads of everyone. You can't really mention Mike Ashley without mentioning Sports Direct, and I've just, which I've just proved. And so it's like free publicity for his business endlessly, even when people are protesting and campaigning to have Newcastle fans boycott Sports Direct, they're actually advertising Sports Direct for him, you know, so... And the thing is, he's so subtle about it. You wouldn't know when you're inside St. James Park. It's like guerrilla marketing. It is. It? I mean, who would know? Who would know? You, you are quite often people say, well, so what does he do, this bloke? I wonder what he's, you know, what's the business? What's he, what's he, what's he about? So, Harry, you handed a war chest, to use a good football phrase, oh, of £10 million. Would you buy a Northern League club and take it through the divisions? I sort of often wonder about that. It was this sort of fantasy that, you know, when, I, when I'm awake at night, you know, that I often think about that. And, but would that... 
if you did that, you're actually taking the club away from what it the very thing the very thing that you would like about it is the thing that you're changing, isn't it? It's like marrying someone and then sort of sp- spending loads of money on plastic surgery for them, which is probably back to Donald Trump there. But anyway, that you know, that'd be like that, really. It's like be destroying the very thing that you like about it. I've never seen this thing where a bit like when with the yeah, sort of the cl- that whole class of '92 documentary with Salford. You could see that some of the old Salford fans are like, "Well, actually, if I wanted to watch league football, yeah. I'd go and support Oldham or yeah. wherever." Yeah. You know, why well, would I, I come here because I don't want league football? Yeah, it's the thing that the the hardcore support, the people who were going anyway, would be specifically put off mm. by what you want to do to the club. You might get some new fans in for a bit. You move up a few levels of the league, but it's a, it feels like a unreal kind of transient thing. In the meantime, you've lost. The people who would have were going anyway, the three hundred people who were going before. I'd quite like to buy a club and preserve them exactly as they are in stasis. Buy York City maybe and stop them moving from Bootham Crescent. So preserve an old ground, preserve an old way of life, make a sort of beamish football club. That would be. I'd, I can get behind that idea. I think that's a very good idea. Like, you know, they bring back and you have your Bovril and everything there. You know, recreate Middlesbrough Anopolis maybe. That, that Middlesbrough Anopolis would be the team in their, you know, in their, in their fancy. Were well, they sort of green and purple yeah. shirts they played in? You know. And they're probably, you know, you know, I always wondered, there must have been Ionopolis fans. How long, you know, well, you know, do you go and say, no, but I'm from, my dad, my granddad was an Ionopolis fan, so we, I've never been able to go. We had an article once by somebody, a kind of spoof article, who claimed to be a Clapton Orient fan, because they'd, they'd moved to Leighton, like, pre-Second World War, and said, every so often we have this ritual, once every couple of months, where we go to the site where the ground used to be in Clapton, and, and sort of stand there at three o'clock. And someone from the Daily Mirror phoned us up and said, could you put us in touch with this guy? Because we might send a photographer along to the, the next time. Foolishly, I said, no, I told them it was made up. I should have just said, yeah, well, you need to go to the you know, shopping centre. and blah, blah, blah. that time in the podcast called Record Breakers where Cheryl Baker comes along or we pick a record each from the website 45football.com. What have you chosen, Andy, for this podcast? Right, this is um, RWD Molenbeek, uh, second club in Brussels, had a very complicated history, just been reformed. Um, this is from a whole LP they made after their one um, victory in the Belgian Championship. They won the Belgian League in... 74-75 I've always wondered how RWD is pronounced in French and it is apparently Erwaday as as, as the uh, the, the, the person elucidates there also I quite like the fact that they've um, stolen another tune, it's Eviva Espana um, but just uh, repurposed um, to the greater good of Molenbeek and didn't they they, their name's complicated isn't it it is massively complicated, they're called great they're called Racing White Dare, RWD Racing White Daring, which was two clubs who merged called Racing and White Star, then another 10 years on, they absorbed another team called Daring, so RWD. But a, a rare case of, for a while, a successful merger, because they won the league almost straight away, in a period when Anderlecht, the bigger club, weren't winning the Belgian league, Molenbeek did win it. I don't, I don't, I don't, the, the, my, my facts about them is that they once had a player called Lambic Wawa, Performed. His father, Lambic, is a type of beer, and it, it was a type of beer that his father was particularly fond of. Just the way he didn't like stout or something like that. I don't know. And a rare example of a whole album 
Yes, a whole, uh, an, L, an LP um, celebrating uh, a title, um, the kind of thing t- teams should do more of. Harry, what's your record of choice from 45football.com this well, time? I'm also, I'm also going to Belgium. You know, as a Maréchal de Ligne said, you know, every man has, has two countries, his own and Belgium. Um, and I've gone for, um, for Jean-Marie um, by the BBC Singers, the 1986 World Cup. Not affiliated to the British Broadcasting Corporation, I must point out for copyright I reasons. I don't, I don't know what, what it must stand for, it doesn't say, but it's, and it's uh, celebrating the goalkeeper Jean-Marie Pfaff. Um, and it, I, I don't really, I don't understand French, but I do, I do note that they it manages to rhyme mundial with professional, which uh, would be uh, quite tricky. <laughs> quite a staple of football records, bad rhyming. And that's bad a rhyming, and, 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 and Jean-Marie Pfaff was particularly, he was, a, he was a quite a character and ended up in a, uh, in a as it was an article in When Saturday Comes Back. Yes, a reality up. show. It's like the equivalent of the Osbournes, wasn't it? It was a kind of Osbourne-esque yeah. sort of thing about his family. But he, he got into kind of trouble with the Belgian broadcasters for constantly... Having advertising local business like the local butcher. And yeah, the- he had uh, he had stickers on his shirt lapels advertising local businesses. <laughs> well, I think it was him, and I think his uncle, who's the maverick in the family. I can't remember his uncle's name. Both did, both did it. Do you think the surname Faf constitutes a headline writer's dream? I think it does for a goalkeeper, doesn't it? Yeah. Although he was, it was actually a top. He was a he very, was a very, very good, good goalkeeper. He was a really yeah, excellent yeah. goalkeeper. So lucky. Yeah. But I think the I think the sort of people who shout out. Um, David Batty, Nora Batty, more like, would have had, you know, those sort of terrace wags would have had fair fun with faff. Well, my own choice, and I know you've all been waiting with bated breath, is the wonderful Rotherham United record Millermen from 1980 by Rotherham United's squad of the time with Daniel Cannon, and it goes a little something like this. We've got a slow build-up and then a sort of Chaz and Dave vibe that I quite like going on. Chaz and Dave venture to South Yorkshire, which sounds like a good film. Uh, yeah, that would have, yeah, sort of fish out, fish out of water film, wouldn't it? <laughs> a classic one. And it has another of the staples of a good football song, which is the squad singing the chorus. One of the th- other things you notice from that website about the great football records is that around Europe there are loads of football records that are made by uh, bands who are now middle-aged, but they've still got the same hairstyles they had when they were about 21 or hoping to make it in the rock business, but now they're 45 and making, an act, making a, a record with like a mid-table team in Switzerland. You, know, you can kind of see it on their faces a bit. But they're, still, but they're still something in, there's a glint of rock and roll in their eyes. Yeah, and they'll have, and they'll have very often an English type name, they'll be called something like the Johnny Banger Trio. Or something. <laughs>
Come on down to Millmore and join the happy band, sing a song to Rotherham and try to lend a hand. So it's got a nice moral message as well. It has, but you know, possibly a, a deliberate, a deliberate be, a, be a red card offence. Please consider becoming a member of the When Saturday Comes Supporters Club on Patreon. From just $2 a month, which is around £1.55, I feel I need an economic comparison there, 155 penny sweets, perhaps, you'll get access to bonus episodes and material, plus exclusive merchandise. Find out more by heading to patreon.com slash whensaturdaycomes. Andy, it's that time of the podcast where we've run out of things to say. And I wish for you to tell me an odd, non-football-related fact you know about a certain footballer. Here we go. Um, Ralph Milne, Scottish winger, briefly with Man United, formerly with Aberdeen Dundee United. Um, a friend of mine, Kevin Donnelly, did a football coaching course, an FA coaching course, with Ralph Milne, one of the ex-players there. And Ralph Milne can do a thing where he can tuck one of his ears into the side of his head, so from certain angles it looks like he hasn't got an ear, then he'll go up to you and pretend to be deaf, kind of go, what, sorry? They think, oh my God, he hasn't got... Oh, and then he pulls it out, thank God, it's still there. It's extraordinary. Did yeah. he ever use that on the pitch? Uh, well, you'd like to think so. Yeah, there was something about... Because he was very fast, wasn't he? I remember in some football book that I read, and he said he could run 100 metres in 10 seconds. And he thought that he was so quick he'd run 100 metres in 10 seconds. I remember, this is the sort of thing that people say in football. If he could run 100 metres in 10 seconds, he would actually be in the Olympics. <laughs> He's a tiny but, Scottish man. But he wouldn't hear the gun going if he was on but his wrong side. Well, that's what he would do. It yeah. would be a whole comedy act yeah. for him. Would he, would he actually get a medal in the Olympics or would he go for the big laugh? With his tucks in here, and I think he would have gone for the laugh. Well, you'd, you'd win your gold medal in your first Olympics, and the next time next you, you've got this, the safety of having already won it, then you can play it for then you can play Then you can play your tucked in here thing. Is it the ear that helped him run fast, though? Do ears really hold people back, and so he could run faster? Oh, by more time? streamlined, yeah. possibly. Well, because often they, they, they often say, you know, he pinned his ear, ears back, didn't they, when they were running fast. So he pinned his ears back and went for goal. Or maybe he just ran around in circles because of the lack of balance. Don't you <laughs> Any more unusual footballer facts? Well, um, there may be several unusual facts about Ron Nodes, former chairman of Wimbledon, Crystal Palace, Brentford, chairman manager of Brentford. One of the times at Brentford, one of the previous times they're trying to get a new stadium off the ground, they had a a public day where they they had a, a unveiled a scale model of the proposed new stadium. Quite a few Brentford fans went along to the meeting, and Ron Nodes was there. And there was some buffet food there, and Ron Nodes expressed his disappointment that his favourite type of cheese wasn't there, which is primula apparently which is the 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 cheese you get in the tube it's like toothpaste but cheese which maybe that's the slogan and i think that ron nodes used to live in on he had a house in on which is where graham green used to live as well so i wonder if graham green ever got a note through the door saying the latest consignment of primulas here we're going to have a soiree i think he was disappointed with the french cheese board with where's the proper cheese never mind all this never mind your morbier the kind of stuff i'd also i'd imagine useful for the things you'd probably do grouting with it and stuff he did was 
it well, did have a feeling of a grouting. Yeah. yeah. Is it Danish Premier though? It's, it's no. Got, it's a Scandinavian product. Is it a, you could get it in many flavours. You could get it with pineapple in it and then with ham, I think, and possibly with chives. But obviously Ron didn't, he didn't go into any details about that. He was just going for the straight ahead. He was too busy looking for the laughing cow in the fridge. That's right. The key, what was it? Le vache qui rive. One of the few French phrases that I know. Just well, it's the only one you need. It's the only one you do. You need little else when you've got that. <laughs> Might go down well as a football match snack. I think it would do. The, the triangle. Messy, but... Little triangles, I'd say. Just, uh, just li- little triangles. Facts. Facts. Well, that, well facts. the fact that everybody... You know, there's a fact that every fan knows about Duncan McKenzie. Oh, yes. That he could jump over a mini. Yeah, and, and throw a golf ball over a stadium roof. Throw a golf ball over a stadium But, not, but not, obviously not both at the same time. And that is the thing. That was one of those things that quite often it will crop up, though, from people who go... Hey, guess what? what? Amazing fact. And you go, yeah, is it Duncan McKenzie jumping over him? It's yeah. like a fact, you know, that everybody walks. But all I was thinking is, how did he find that out? Yeah, how did when, you practice? At what point did he... I mean, you don't just run up and randomly go, oh, there's a mini. I think I'll just... I'll go, I, bet, I, wonder, I wonder if I could jump over it. I, I mean, mean, the golf ball over the stadium roof is like a bet. Yeah. It sounds like a sort of... Those proposition men in, that Damon Runyon used to write about, you know, you know, they, they often would have a thing like, oh, I'll bet you I can do that. I bet you I can throw a... Throw a through a you know and hit a pigeon or something like that you know so the Duncan McKenzie but the mini I never did I don't know do I don't did he ever was he ever filmed doing yes there, I remember seeing well yeah yeah I, th- I think I remember seeing did he touch the mini or did he just vault over it That's no, I think he I, vaulted over it just vaulted yeah. without I thought he put the hand on the roof and kind of like went over it that way. Could that's he do it over a modern mini in a Tuesday night in Grimsby? That's exactly, well, that's a, a fair point there. So, yeah, so that would be one of my things. And then, of course, it was at Middlesbrough, Alan Kernigan, the Middlesbrough and Man City later on, his uncle. The Osborne centre-half. Yes, that's right. He turned centre-forward, turned centre-half. Poacher turned gamekeeper, <laughs> or vice versa, perhaps. Um, but his his uncle was the little bald man in Benny Hill, wasn't he? he was, Jackie Wright. Jackie Wright. He was he was Alan Kernan's uncle, apparently. But again, based on the fact that everyone in Teesside believes that to be true, whether it is or not, someone said it. And sometimes these things, like you're saying, you know, you're saying about about how the you know the Daily Mirror thought that thing was real. Yeah. But I remember reading something in When Saturday Comes once about how on the journey to the first World Cup. Oh, the yes. Romanian players converted to Zoro- some of them to Zoroastrianism. To Zoroastrianism, and I did put that in a. In a yeah. There was a sort of like a jokey column anyway that yeah. I wrote for the Guardian, but I did believe that to be true. Yeah. But it turned out it was made up, Andy. You it rotters, was. you spoofers that you are. The mini jumping anecdote. The other day I was writing a piece about Ned Doig, the great Sunderland goalkeeper of the Victorian and Edwardian era. I came across reference in an article to his great party piece that he could still do well into his 50s. And when I read what this was, it was jumping over a chair backwards. It's oh. a good oh, party right. piece. It is a piece. Because I think C.B. Fry, who obviously was a great, this one of the great kind of Edwardian sportsmen who played for Southampton, he could jump onto a mantelpiece. I remember reading that. And he, and that, that there's a mantelpiece here, which obviously is, you know, I'm pointing at it now so everyone knows exactly. It's just a stuff. The thought that you could actually jump onto there, how you'd stay on it once you got there, even if all that stuff off as well. If you got there, yeah, even if you got there, how you'd, st- how you'd stop on it. There's also a, a case of a, a football coach being sacked for his party piece, uh, Steve Harris. When he was a oh, coach, yes. uh, worked with Graham Taylor and was a coach at the England squad, could and God knows how he found he could do this. But it was the thing that helped break the ice at the Players Hotel, he would crouch on top of a wardrobe and uh, could poo into a cup. 
That's right. That yes, was, uh, on, the, on the, the crap in a cup. Crap scandal. in a cup. It's quite something. Yeah. Yeah, but what? what but how? He, how he came to do that in the first place? And how many goes did he have to have? Yeah. yeah. But it's like normally if someone said, "Oh, he's going to do his party piece," it yeah. would be like singing my way. Yeah. Wouldn't, or or you doing wouldn't expect a, that that's what yeah, it's like going, a balloon just dog or something. Yeah. Crowd around kids coming yeah. to the front room. Yeah. He's yeah. going to yeah. do his party. Uncle Steve's on the mantelpiece. Yeah. Oh no, he's missed again. Somebody get some cloth. He was. He did. He did various other things. Did he not also? He used to hide loads of cutlery in his in his uh, jacket and then let it all fall out at breakfast and stuff like that. He was one of those people. He's like a, a bubbly figure. He was always, you know, irrepressible. Irrepressible. He like, relieved the tension in the dressing room. With yeah, his, or, or you think possibly created it. Like, oh <laughs> no! Oh no! He's, here's Steve. What's he going to do this time? Everything was everything was going so well. The cups. At he's put the cup down. <laughs> Avert your eyes. <laughs> You've been listening to the When Saturday Comes podcast, produced and edited by me, Daniel Gray. Please have a think about supporting us on patreon.com slash whensaturdaycomes, which will give you access to bonus podcast material and other goodies. And please do join me, Andy and Harry, again next time for more vital, topical and half-decent chatter.